Episode 149 of the Bevan James Hour Show, an interview with Dr. Paul Wood. Radio team, welcome along to episode 149 of the Bevan James. I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime level of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Pretty excited today. Actually, I've got a, a really great interview with a guy called Dr. Paul Wood. He's, he's, he's quite well known in New Zealand, um, but around the world he probably doesn't have such a well-known name, but he is someone who has a fascinating life story. Uh, which starts from basically spending the majority of his first period of his adult life in prison and then really turning his life around to becoming uh, someone around psychology, around helping people grow, uh, and just a very passionate man. And you're going to see in this interview, like, I think the interview is about an hour long, so I'm not going to do much of an intro today, um, but we could have spoken for five hours, <laughs> you know, like after about an hour, I was like, oh, I probably should wrap it up, but not because I didn't, you know, want to keep talking more just because, you know, time was limited. So, um, and, and I may actually get Paul back on the show later on in the year. He's got a book coming out later on in the year. So we may get him on once his new book comes out because it'd be good to get him on again around the book that he's putting out. So I'm not going to do much of an intro before the interview, although I was going to do one quick little thing. I was teaching a class just before Christmas and uh, I said something that someone said to me the next day really affected them, made them really think about things, especially at this time of year because it's that New Year's period where we all do a bit of self-reflection and, and sometimes it can lead to change, sometimes nothing changes, uh, sometimes there's you know, incremental change that comes at this time. And I just said to my class, do you think this time next year you'll be a higher version of yourself or do you feel you'll be the same version or do you think you've actually kind of gone back a little bit in yourself and I think it's a really interesting question to explore at this time of year where we do do that kind of self-assessment and we do try to create some change just by the end of this year do you think you'll be a higher version of yourself and you may even want to kind of think about that question in incremental or break it down to different categories of your life you could kind of say with my health and fitness will I be a higher version of myself with my creativity will I be a higher version in my career in my relationships in the different areas of your life do you fundamentally believe that by the end of the 2019 you will be a higher version of yourself and if you are aiming to be a higher version of yourself what are the steps and what are the actions that you're going to take to allow you to become that higher version of yourself throughout this year and then I suppose if we kind of bring it back right down to today what are all the little things you need to do each day so you do have that more evolved version of yourself by the end of the year so kind of chucking that out it's a kind of a small segment before we get into the main interview with Dr. Paul Woods but before we do I just want to say a big thank you to all the patrons of the show if you want to become a patron of the show go to bevanjamesisles.com and you'll see there's the patronage link on there and that just basically means that every time I put a show out you put a little bit of your hard-earned money my way, and it helps me do what I do. And uh, these people have been patrons of my show for a while. Gemma and Glenn Mitchell, Team Divine. We've got Libby Olin-Hilda. Uh, Libby's always gold. Uh, we've got Rebecca Blue Eyes Spears. Uh, we've got Bernadette Soul Calibur Parry. We've got Matt Forrest Warhol Akhurst. Wally, oh sorry, not Wally, Holly. <laughs> sorry, Holly. Holly, the go-getter Woodhouse. Actually, Holly's become a bit of a 
bit of a New Zealand sensation, really, which is really great. Uh, she's doing lots of good work about getting people out and adventuring. And then we've got Sue, the only way up is Chisel. These people are all patrons of the show. And if you become a patron, you get a, a cool nickname like those people. And also you support me in what I am doing. So thank you to all my patrons. And again, go to bevanjamesos.com if you want to become a patron. Anyway, we're going to get straight into our interview with Dr. Paul Wood. Put some music on and here is Dr. Paul Wood. Okay, team, I'm pretty excited to have uh, Dr. Paul Wood on the show. He's the guy who's done some, first of all, he's got an amazing backstory, a pretty, pretty fascinating backstory, and is a real example of how you turn a life around, but then has really spent kind of the second half of his life, or, or from a certain point on in his life, kind of growing people and developing people. And, and you know, to me, that I always find that pretty fascinating. So first of all, welcome along to the show, Paul. Oh, pleasure to be here. Um, where do we start? Maybe, maybe just give the backstory. And I know, I, I know, in your world, you probably know, you know it's kind of tape play kind of experience for you. But just you know, so the audience, because this is quite a global audience, just give us a little bit of your backstory around uh, where you started and where you got to and how it all happened. Okay, so uh, look, and I do think it's it's relevant because it gives people a good idea about why I'm so passionate about trying to help other people strive towards their potential. Uh, so I didn't start off as a positive contributing member of society at all. I grew up and my experience of growing up was you now getting some pretty strong messages from society and uh, from my peer group and from people I associated with that what it meant to be a man basically was to be able to solve your problems with violence and that the measure of the man was the capacity for violence and that as a man you should always be able to stand on your own two feet, never need help or support from anyone and you shouldn't feel any emotions you'd associate with vulnerability or weakness. And uh, I grew up expecting to join the infantry at 18. That would have been living the dream for me, join the army and then, you know, if, if, if everything aligned, getting into SAS. So that's what I sort of grew up expecting to do. And that in of itself, while I think it's a very uh, honourable career, it is also a, a pro-violence sort of orientation, right, from a pretty young age. Uh, and we grew up doing martial arts. That was the sort of sports we were involved in myself and my brothers. And... When I had my teenage years and I found myself experiencing all these emotions I didn't think I was supposed to have as a man, thought there was something wrong with me, thought there was something broken about me, and certainly didn't have the tools to be able to cope with those distressing, unpleasant emotions, you know, the fear, the anxiety, all of that sort of stuff. And in part, as a result of that, got further and further into drug use to not have to face the reality of those emotions, to not have to deal with them. And I grew up in a, uh, what at the time was an area which had some pretty antisocial people, you know, um, multi-generational or intergenerational crime families, that sort of stuff, gang families. And those were the people I hung out with. And one of the things we know, of course, about teenagers is that the peer group is a, is a heavy influence in terms of you know, what you consider to be right or wrong or normal behavior. And we know that most people will engage in some type of sort of uh, rule-breaking or questionable behavior as teenagers, but because the group of people I were hanging out with were people who you know, were doing burglaries and um, hitting people with weapons and that sort of stuff, that was more sort of the normal behavior for me. And uh, when I was 18, uh, my mum died. She had been the only sort of potential source of softness and support in my life, and she was someone whose impending death was something I was really struggling to deal with. A couple of days after that, I chose to catch up with a drug dealer. Uh, and as a result of the conflict that happened during that meeting, 
they ended up dead and I ended up in prison for the next uh, nearly 11 years. Can so I went in at 18. pause there. What's that like? Which, which well, aspect? Well, you know, when, you've, when, you, when you know someone's, you know, you're the cause of someone's death. What's mm. that like? Yeah. Conflicting, eh? Very conflicting. Because what you do, like, so say, for example, he had um, uh, attempted to attack me to sexually assault me in my house and, and I had killed him. But I had definitely chosen to end his life when I didn't need to. Okay. There was a point where I could have let him leave the house. Right? No question about it. But instead, I chose to end his life. Mm. But, of course, what you do naturally is you want to avoid that sort of level of accountability, right? So I spent a lot of time feeling like I was the victim, minimizing, rationalizing, justifying my own behavior to avoid really having to try and confront the reality of going, you know, at the end of the day, whatever mitigation, whatever excuses you can come up with, I chose to end this guy's life. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's a pretty sort of heavy burden to bear. Oh, my God. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, it's it's a burden that's made significantly lighter by living a, a, a redemptive life now in terms of trying to make a positive contribution. I think that's that's one of the things that I always really try to focus on is if you feel guilty about something, you know, the best thing to do with that is to alleviate that guilt and demonstrate the remorse you feel through the actions that you take today, mm-hmm. you know, through your behavior. There's not a whole lot of benefit for anyone in spending your time sort of looking back, wringing your hands to the extent where it actually stops you from being able to do anything redemptive now and really sort of grow and learn. Um, it was a, a traumatic experience too, of course, you know, um, uh, that sort of level of, I suppose, the severity of that kind of combat, I want to say, or not combat, but, you know, um, just clash and, yeah, violence, you know, is, is a traumatic thing to experience. I think from either side, I think you'd have to be a, you know, a real psychopath not to be troubled by that. Mm. Uh, if you did end up being the person who was on the, the less severe end of it. And I definitely think uh, earlier on after that, I had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, hypervigilance, nightmares, all of that sort of stuff. But I actually think coming out the other end of it now, uh, I would consider myself someone who's experienced post-traumatic growth. Now, just about all of us have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, right, PTSD. But what very few of us realize is actually an equal number of people who go through incredibly traumatic experiences. And most people will experience trauma in their life. The research suggests about 75% of people will report that they've experienced strong trauma in their lives. Whatever that means for different people is different, but that's what the rates are. But an equal number of people who will come out at risk of PTSD in the long term will actually come out the other side experiencing post-traumatic growth. And this is where they look back on it and they go, you know what, that was such a terrible experience, but I actually feel that I've grown as a person as a result of that. So while I really didn't enjoy it, while it was terrible, while it was traumatic, I actually feel that I'm better off as a result of that experience. Now, this is really interesting because if you're aware of post-traumatic growth as an option, that actually provides an inoculating effect against PTSD. Because what happens is, is that if you're someone who's experiencing trauma and all you're aware of is the potential long-term consequences of this and impact of you. It actually makes it more likely that that will happen. Yeah. Whereas we're aware that post-traumatic growth is an option, 
then it's more likely you'll be able to hold on to that and that will actually help you cope more effectively with the trauma as you experience and have less severe long-term outcomes. This is why it's one of the things the US military does now to help prepare combat uh, troops in order to help inoculate them against PTSD is just making them aware of post-traumatic growth. Um, my only regret around it, of course, is that, of course, there were lots of other people who had incredibly negative experiences because of my actions. So in the interest of my growth and learning, there are a whole lot of other people who were hurt by that. So that's where my regret would sit, not in terms of anything I experienced subsequent to that or or, or related to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. It's kind of that thing of... Um, uh if you can actually find the right approach, something that's so traumatic can actually, and then you consciously are aware of it, it can actually make you move through it with more purpose and a much better direction in your life instead of kind of being stuck in that victim mentality and this defines my life and, and leads my path forward. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's an interesting one. Like one of the things I talk to people a lot about these days is that stress is not actually a negative to be avoided. It's a challenge to be embraced. Mm -hmm. And it's actually through stress and through the pressure and the cognitive load, the emotional load of stress, that you have the opportunity to really actually unlock your potential and grow. I mean, you appreciate this because you're a sporting analogy, uh, sorry, your sporting background, but I use sporting analogy all the time about lifting weights. You know, you don't get strong lifting the easy weights. You get strong from putting in an appropriate load, appropriate level of resistance against yourself, against your muscles, and that's what prompts regeneration and growth. The same is true psychologically. You know, we don't grow as people. We don't unlock our potential by being in our comfort zone, by having an easy, stress-free time of it. We actually want to step into that right level of resistance and stress and adversity because that's what enables us to grow. The analogy, though, though, does carry on in terms of what you talk about in the weights. You know, you don't want to be crushed doing mm. a bench press because you've got weights that aren't the right weight for you that are too heavy or you're pre-fatigued, or you don't have a spotter or whatever it is. And it's the same in terms of the way we embrace stress and pressure and adversity. You know, the right level is going to be really beneficial, but we can end up injuring ourselves psychologically if the weight's too, too um, a bigger load to bear. But a big part of that as well is about how do you conceptualize that experience? Think about this. Imagine if you found yourself saying, um, let's say let's say running, right? So you've done what have you done? You've done Ironman, that sort yeah, of thing, right? Yep. Okay. So how long how long would a training run be in preparation for an Ironman? Oh well, like if you're doing a for a, 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 a big yeah. day and an Ironman, God, you'd be out yeah. there for eight, eight hours. God, you know, like you know, for yeah. really crazy stuff. Okay. Now, how is it that you're able to persevere through eight hours worth of exercise? How how is that possible? What keeps you going psychologically? Um, I think I think it's that you've built experience that tells you you can. So you have a history that's built up to that level. It's a really important part of it. Um, you've just learned really good strategies, to be honest. So you've kind of, you know, like, you know, okay, well, if long, like I'm going to do a six-day bike ride and I'm going to find some podcasts that are going to help entertain me. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to use some motivators that are going to work for me. So you kind of just have these tools that you've kind of worked. You might get a training buddy along. Um, you Also, you're kind of like, like, we used to do these things called epic camps, which were like 14 days basically eight hours a day, eight to 10 hours a day of training, just stupid shit. Um, <laughs> but you kind of also go, and it's kind of what you're talking about with stress, you go into it going, this is where I get to learn a higher level of self. So when you're right. that level of an athlete, you're actually seeking that place. And it does take you to a place where you didn't think you could go and you actually find a, higher, a newer level. So I suppose for me as an athlete, when I was doing that sport, it was kind of like, that's what I was seeking. So that made it appealing yeah. to go to that place. It wasn't, I wasn't afraid of that. That was the discovery I wanted. 
Right, because you can see the benefit of being there, right? Yeah, totally, because I learned higher level so, self. Right, imagine if you were out there training and you couldn't see any benefit to it. You'd just stop, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no way you'd carry on. And it's the same in terms of the stressor experience. If you can't see that there's a benefit to it, then all you want to do is avoid it, mm-hmm. right? You don't you don't want to engage with it because it's challenging, it's distressing. Whereas actually, if you can go, you know what, this is hard, but this is beneficial, then it makes it so much easier to really engage with it in the first place, to get out of your comfort zone, to try new things, but also to persevere and then to benefit from it. But you have to see that link. And part of it as well. Yeah, go on. Oh, well, no, it's interesting because I have a recent experience around this. And because um, one of the mindsets I have is that growth is healthy. And so if I, I should feel uncomfortable moments in my life pretty often, if you know what I mean. And, and, and that can be, you know, and one of the things you find in the fitness industry is that fitness people are really good at fitness, but they're really undeveloped outside of fitness, you know, because we get, we get put up on a pedestal because we're good at the thing that most people are bad at. So what most people in the fitness industry are really strong at fitness, but if you take a layer back and you look at the rest of their life, they're actually really lacking. Um, and so mm. while I talk about being uncomfortable, it's not just with exercise. It's, you know, I play piano, I've got business, I've got relationships. Um, but I was speaking to a lady recently, and, and one of the things we discovered for her was her comfort is she her need to stay safe means she doesn't grow and we when I challenged her just to do like a park run which is a real entry-level run and I and I I was like the reason you're doing it is to be uncomfortable we want you to enjoy being uncomfortable it's not I don't expect you to run it I don't you, you probably can't run the whole thing we don't expect you to be great we don't expect you to be what you were when you were younger it's you're doing this to enjoy the fact you're uncomfortable and it's kind of what you're saying there isn't it yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, this, I think this is one of the risks as well, right? So if you get someone who has talent, has capability, and has achieved a high level in any one area, such as in sports, such as in exercise, such as whatever it is, professionally, well, you know, you, maybe you they're a top lawyer, lawyer or yeah, what have yeah, you, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. So the difficulty there is that often what people will do is they will associate that success with you know, an enduring characteristic or trait, that fixed mindset. I mean, I know you interviewed Carol Dwight, mm. right? So absolute legend of space. And a lot of that will be because the messaging they'll get is like, oh, geez, you know, like you're so naturally talented, you're so smart, or you're so athletic, you know, you're so fit, these sorts of things, which are about reinforcing this idea that it's a fixed attribute as opposed to, wow, you've put in a lot of effort mm. into this. You know, wow, you've really worked hard on this. And so what people do then is they forget the learning process they've gone through to get to the level they are. They forget how incremental that was. And then what they do is they go, well, if I'm actually good at anything else, it should just be easy because this is easy for me. And I constantly get feedback about how good I am at this. But because I've forgotten all of the incremental process that led to this, when I try anything new, you know, I'm just so threatened by that feeling of, um, discomfort of it not being easy, of not automatically being good, that I'd rather avoid it because it risks exposing me as not being this person who I've sort of built myself up to be and who I like other people to think I am, mm. you know, this really talented, capable person. So I think that's actually one of the challenges. It's one of the reasons I love working with people who have really achieved majorly in certain areas is to try and get them uh, thinking in the way you think, which is about you know, really, well, what is involved in getting good and how can I generalize this across into other areas of my life and recognize that I'm not going to start at the same place in different areas. You know, you're not going to go from being 
at the level you're at as an athlete and then all of a sudden your piano playing is like that. Yeah, am, yeah. am I correct? Yeah, and that's why I love uh, yeah, piano yeah. because I'm learning life lessons about myself which sport can't teach me because I'm kind of incompetent at it, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, and it teaches me so much more. Like if I just keep doing sport, I wouldn't know as much about myself now than since I've added piano to my life. Yeah. You know. One of the things I also often talk to high achievers about is the real value you can get from having an activity where you're just allowed to be shut. Yeah. You just really let yourself be bad at it. You don't need to be good at it. You can take all that pressure off. Just find something where you really are allowed to be bad mm -hmm. and embrace that and really enjoy the experience of that. Because it's so contrary to the expectations most of us put on ourselves and all of these other areas in our lives, particularly people who are high achievers. So one thing that, that I find interesting, because my, my story is similar but different to yours. Basically, I was a dropkick. I turned my life around and, you know, and, and I've done okay. Um, but interestingly, in both of us, we learned the lesson later in that, you know, you had to go through jail. And I, and I did watch your TED Talk and I kind of saw, you know, your experience was – even in jail, it was kind of a failing experience. And then you had a couple of epiphany moments. And then there was this kind of opening of a door. And then you went through a growth pathway, which was a very small step process. And, and in many ways, my experience was very similar. Like, like I couldn't read or write. And I was, you know, druggy and all the rest of it. And, and then I woke up at 20 and had some bad experiences. Made me realize I needed to grow. And I went through the growth process. But it was a real beginner level. I remember in your TED Talk, you talked about how... Uh, you know, you've used capital letters and all your thing because you thought it was better because you basically didn't know basic writing skills. I was ignorant. Yeah, ignorant. totally. Yeah. And um, and both of us have this thing of where we our transformation happened a little bit later in life, but we saw the process because it happened later. And I wonder if that's an advantage we had because we kind of saw how we grew and we saw the small steps as we went along the way. And then and then it just seemed obvious just to duplicate that as you went into different areas. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, eh? Like, I think for me, one of the things that was more beneficial for me is that because the era I started study was psychology, psychology is a very reflective, uh, let's say, profession or orientation. So it's naturally built into that, the whole sort of step back, how does learning occur, all of that is part of psychology. So I'd actually say it was probably an easier, easier outcome for me than, say, for yourself, right? Because... I mean, I don't know enough about your background, mm. but in terms of the difference in the going into the sports and the rest of it, that's not by necessity as reflective. Obviously, the people who are the highest achievers in the sporting arena are people who engage in that kind of self-reflection. What could I do better? What could I do differently? But there's a whole lot of people who reach high-level professional sports and otherwise who really do get by on the basis of some amazing raw talent and enough experience to be performing at that level but will never get anywhere near their potential because they don't have that orientation you're mm -hmm. talking about towards looking at hey what is involved here and how can I take that learning and use that to get even better mm -hmm. so um, what are some of the common traits you see I know, I know you've got your model and you may want to talk about your model but what, what are some of the you know obviously people come to you because they want to change yeah what is first of all let's look at some of the barriers that are the real barriers that stop people from doing that okay the, the belief that it's not possible to change is the first one you know you're not going to have any interest in change unless you believe it's possible to change and as i said before lots of people think that uh, you know their characteristics their attributes the type of person they are is some type of fixed thing you know they're this type of person and that's it so so if that's the situation you have no interest whatsoever in change it's interesting like when i think about my my business which is primarily leadership development organizational development 
you know, working with people and organizations who want to strive towards their potential, want to turn adversity to their advantages, that sort of stuff. You can look at that and go, well, there's going to be a whole section of people who will not want to work with me because of my background. Oh, really? Do, 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 but, yeah, okay. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But for my mind, those are the people who don't believe it's possible to change and grow anyway. So they're not the type of people who would be interested in the work I do mm. because they're the type of people who have those fixed mindsets, which means that they're never going to be really performing at the highest level possible or being able to help other people do likewise, which is what I spend my time doing. Whereas the people who believe it's possible to change tend to look at my background and go, this guy doesn't just know what he's talking about from a theoretical perspective, from an academic perspective, but he's passionate about it and he knows about it because he's experienced it himself. Yeah, he's got personal credibility so around it. Yeah, so there's kind of like a self-selection that goes on there anyway. Um, but, you know, part of the big challenge in terms of that sort of change in growth, again, is, is believing it's possible because you can have insight, for example, in terms of the areas where, you know, you're not behaving in the way you'd want your reputation to reflect or you're not, you know, demonstrating your values or it just doesn't feel right to you. But again, to have any motivation to do something about that, you need to believe it's possible to change. So, and so I think that. So just to, to challenge this, what, what do we, because like, okay, so if someone's open to change, you, you're kind of saying that easier because, you know, you just got to give them the tools and the pathway really, don't you? Um, yeah. And then we've got the people who are fixed, you know, I'm not good at music, so I'll never learn an instrument. I, I can't uh -huh. run, you know, so I'll never try to run. Um, how do you get them to shift that? The experience of change. Okay the experience of small successes. Because I was someone like that, right? I was someone who naturally had a fixed mindset. I thought I was a certain type of person. You know, I didn't think I was someone who could succeed in education, for example. I'd been held back a year at school. I'd never got any messages at school that I was a smart person, at all mm. quite the opposite. Um, and when I started studying, it wasn't to, you know, like do a degree or anything massive. It was just to get some knowledge in an area I found interesting. But I had these small successes in terms of, you know, getting assignments back that weren't completely terrible and then passing exams that made me realize, actually, you know what, I am capable of more than I thought in this area. So I think that's the thing, right? If you can get people to buy in enough to try mm. to step out of that comfort zone just a little bit, just in really small ways, then you can give them the experience of small successes, which can help shift that perspective. But I think part of that as well is shifting the idea of what the goal is. Mm. It's like you were talking about with... Uh, the woman in the park, where you're trying to shift the goal from going, it's not about this run being easy or being able to do this. It's about actually experiencing the challenge of it. That that is the goal, mm. and then that makes something you know quite different from a psychological point of view in terms of what success would look like. Mm. And it's the same if you can go to someone. Well, look, you know that the goal here is to get a little bit better, and the only measure for that is how are you yesterday, how are you right now, and how are you going to be tomorrow. That's a far more manageable focus than going, your goal is to be good at this. Your goal is to be able to achieve this. Mm. And again, it goes back to that growth mindset stuff. This is one of the things I talk to people about all the time. As a human being, when it comes to, you know, trying to really strive towards your potential, you know, the pursuit of excellence in whatever area you place value on in life, your only legitimate goal is ever about getting better, not being good. Because being good, that's like a comparative measure to someone else, right? How good am I compared to you at running or lifting weights or whatever it is? Whereas if my goal is to get better, then the only legitimate comparison there is myself. And that's the only one ever because no one else has my life experiences, you know, my advantages, my disadvantages, all of those things that make me me. But also the cool thing about focusing on getting better rather than being good is getting better is about self-mastery. 
as opposed to dominance. Mm. So let's say, for example, you know, my uh, my sporting background is in judo. That's the sport that I've spent most of my time in. Now, I'm in my 40s now. If my goal is to be good, I'm going to find it really challenging to get beaten up by these 20-year-olds and the rest of it who are sort of like prime condition. Yeah. You youth know. on their side. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just can't compete with that sort of stuff, right? Even if I had the skill set, which yeah. I really don't, yeah. I just can't compete with that. And as I get older and older, it's going to be even less and less possible to compete with that, right? So all that's going to turn into is some kind of, you know, self-defeating exercise where the chances are is I'll just be turned off by it. I won't want to engage with it anymore. Whereas if my goal is getting better, then that's about self-mastery. And that's about finding the ways that I can constantly be improving in what I do. And other people provide an opportunity to sharpen my tools in terms of my skill set. But they're not the measure of my progress. And the great thing about that is that that goal of getting better is a lifelong goal. Whereas, again, if your goal is being good, is dominating other people, is beating other people at something, that definitely is going to have a shelf life, right? Unavoidably. Mm. So it's a tough thing to sort of place a whole lot of self-worth and value on, right? So one thing, so, so one thing that's important to probably reinforce here is because you know, many people who listen to this and probably see the areas of their life where they're fixed mindset, uh, where I can't do this, so I don't even bother opening the door to it, um, is you're kind of saying that, if you are going to open your door to it, it's really important that you put the right focus in that first step because you basically got to have some success in that first step, don't you? Because if you don't have success in that first step, it just reinforces the fixed mindset, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, think about this though, right? That's possible. But we can even take it back further a step and go, you know what, my goal in terms of trying this new thing where there's a high risk of failure is to actually demonstrate a bit of courage and try it. Nice. That is my goal is to demonstrate the courage necessary to try this. Whatever the consequences aren't relevant. Mm. It's just about exercising that courage. And the cool thing about courage, right, is it's like a muscle. The more I exercise it, the stronger it gets. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to look at this and go, this is an opportunity to exercise that courage muscle. The outcomes don't matter, but I've already got the benefit from just trying it. And then, of course, if there is any success, then that's going to shift and build the interest in working on that skill set, right? Mm. But at the end of the day, if there's a failure, it's not going to be seen as some kind of, oh, what the hell, I'll just, you know, throw everything out of the cot and just give up. It's going to be seen more as, well, okay, look, that didn't succeed, but I'll tell you what, I still succeeded in exercising that courage muscle. And who doesn't want a bit more courage, eh? Yeah. You know, the ability to do the right thing rather than the easy thing in the circumstances that, you know, are important. When you look back and measure your life at the end of your life, and all of our lives is way too brief, right, that you're going to be able to go, you know what, I feel that I did the right thing with my life, I made the right decisions, and I did what was meaningful. You know, how you do that is by exercising courage where it's required, because doing the right thing and doing the meaningful thing in life is often doing the hard thing. Mm. So I think if you could think about it like that, right, then that would be a useful way to go. I mean, one of the things when I've had the opportunity to exercise very early in the morning. One of the things I used to tell myself to help me get up early enough was, okay, first step, getting out of bed. This right now is success because this is me exercising my willpower muscle. Mm. Right. So by virtue of just getting out of bed to do this, I've already done my first workout, which is my willpower workout. And again, who doesn't want more willpower, right? Mm. So building that muscle is a really useful one as well. So you're kind of attaching kind of character traits that you admire and want to kind of evolve to those little steps that help you kind of look at it in a different perspective, which actually motivates you in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez, it's the same. Like, again, talking about that stress idea, you know, like 
And I know you've got kids, right? Oh, well, she's 21. But, yeah, but, 21? Well, yeah, okay, a bit different than mine. I've got an 18 year old. Yeah, you're in the deep end. I'm, I'm, she's trembling. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, someone has to be on the tail end of the bell curve where not much sleep is required. Yeah. Right? That's our boys. Yeah. And we're regularly, regularly up, particularly our 18-month-old is teething now. He's got his last four teeth coming through. So he is diabolical at night, right, in terms of sleeping. And I will be up. And I will be awake with him, and I will be thinking, oh, no, I've got a big day tomorrow. I've got to speak at this conference. I've got to do this and this. But then what I will do is I will literally say to myself, you know what? This is me in the mental toughness jump right now. This is me getting mentally tough right now. And as a result of that, I will stop hemorrhaging this precious resource, which is my psychological energy, you know, my emotional energy, and I'll actually be able to cope more effectively and be less impacted by it. But again, it's that ability to shift mindset and choose how you perceive your circumstances. Mm, mm, mm. And it has a massive effect on the way you're experiencing life then, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of that is around that ability to assume some sense of control over what's going on, even if it's out of your control. Mm. Right. So again, it's that idea that, you know, like if I choose to go to the gym and lift weights, then I'm in control of that. I'm making that choice. But if all of a sudden I found myself under a bench press with weights, Right, you know, I've got a couple of choices there, really. You know, and one is to just be going, oh, this is terrible, I want to get out of here. Or one is to go, okay, well, this is the circumstances. You know, I'll do the best I can in this. You know, what is in my control? What is in my power? And it's that second option that's going to have you far more effective in terms of maintaining your resilience and being able to persevere and keep doing what you need to do in a set of circumstances, right? Mm. I mean, I think one of the biggest influences for me was reading uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning mm. about his experience of being in a concentration camp in World War II, because that gives you some pretty stark uh, perspective, right? For this guy who's moment by moment in his day having to fear death um, by the Nazis, whose family has been killed, who's just around the most depraved behavior constantly, if he can still choose you know, how he responds in those circumstances, the perspective he adopts, then, well, I mean, my life's pretty pretty sweet in comparison, right? There's mm. no excuse for me. Mm. In your talk, you, you know, you, you talk about your steps. And, and maybe you just want to quickly introduce your kind of five steps to freedom. Just want to kind of quickly tell us about those. Okay, well, the first one is recognising that, you know, the stuff you need to focus on is not the stuff in the external world. It's, it's the inner game. It's what's going on in your head. If you really want to affect positive change and growth in your life, if you want to have more well-being, if you want to strive towards your potential, you don't need to worry about the external world. You need to worry about the inner world, what's going on, your thoughts and beliefs about the world, the emotions you experience and how you engage with those. But then there's the next step, which is actually you know, choosing to want to do something about that. And that's where I was talking before about having to have the courage to actually want to try and make change, to risk failure, to step out of your comfort zone, and the belief that it's possible to actually grow, to get better. And then there's the, the third step, which is actually starting to take action. You know, the reality is, is there's a, a lot of us, and in fact, I'd say all of us really have this in different ways or in different shapes and speak different things, where we go, oh, this would be of value to me, but I'm just so busy at the moment. You know, maybe when the kids are older or when things are easier or where circumstances are better, that's when I'll start doing this. Whereas for me, a really, really, really key component in terms of real successful change and growth is identifying what are the really small steps I can start taking right now that will lead me a long way over time. You know, the, the, 
quote, we've all heard the quote, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Yeah. But have you heard the full quote, which is Rome wasn't built in a day, but a brick was laid every hour. Oh, nice. Yeah. Think about how different that quote is in terms of how you interpret that. Mm. And that's what that third step's about. It's about going, well, what are the bricks? What are the small steps that I can start taking that are in my control right now, regardless of my circumstances, that will take me a long way over time? And because that's how you get anywhere. Anywhere of distance is through small steps, right? Mm. It's that incremental stuff. It's the small daily disciplines. So for me in, in prison, you know, you always hear people go, oh, when I get free, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And it's a really tangible sort of like illustration, right? Because you're incarcerated, you're in prison, and then there's this freedom, which is this future state where things will be easier. But the reality is, is the way I was able to succeed was not by focusing on some imaginary future state where things will be easier. I just said, what can I do right now? What's in my control right now? And that's really what that third, third step's about. It's about going, it's got to be focusing on me and my inner world that's going to get me the most results. You know, I need to be prepared to step out of my comfort zone there to risk failure, to believe it's possible to change. And then I need to actually start taking the action, start taking those small steps. And one of the things I talk to people about all the time and I think really uh, resonated with me in terms of how you talk about your, your running school is this idea of lowering the motivation bar. You know, you try and make it so easy to start that people yeah. can start because yeah. the start is the hard part, right? We, we call it the entry point. We, we, you know, like even when we design our, our beginner program, um, the first thing we always think of is, is what's the entry point where a, someone who's insecure has a fixed mindset around the running, you know, yep. has a history that tells them they're going to fail. What's the entry point? The way they come on to the first session and they walk away and they win. And that's, you know, yeah. that, that's the key. Because if they come to that first session and they don't win, we've lost them. But if they come along to that first session and they win, then they'll come back to the second time. And, yeah. then, and then we build their kind of their stretch points so they keep having – basically, in, in their first journey, it's just keep building wins. Keep building wins, keep building wins. And it is, if you get that entry point right, and we have, we've figured what that is. If you get that entry point right, then they start to build that belief, they build their trust, they build, you know, and that's the thing. But if you don't get that entry point, and early on I didn't necessarily get it right, and you know, where our success rate wasn't as high, and then I kind of finally figured out, okay, there's the entry point where they come along, they have an experience, they win, they, and you see them leaving that first session, and it's very, very basic level of exercise, but oh my God, they're on top of the world. You know, it's you know, yeah. it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's that first moment of shit. I can do it. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's so powerful. But again, you know, that entry point, right? Lowering the motivation bar enough to make it possible to start. Mm. Yeah. Because you don't ever want to be relying on motivation, right, to get your places. You want to be relying on plans mm. and really manageable, achievable plans. Where even if you don't feel motivated, you can still be working in a in a positive direction. I mean, I I listened to the uh, Anders Ericsson interview that you did yeah and i'm familiar with his work you know his work's just so crucial in terms of my whole area but i was so interested to hear him talking about how the optimal learning zone was where you're actually experiencing 50 percent failure yeah. in terms of skill development right yeah. so think about that you're, you're missing 50 percent of your three throws or whatever you're doing and you know and i thought that was so interesting right because if you think about it you know, how much of the time are we really exposing ourselves to that level of learning? Now, of course, you know, there's the, it needs to be low-stakes setting, right? Yeah. I wouldn't be recommending that people go out and, you know, risk 50% failure in front of, say, the CEO or the board or yeah. whatever it is. But as a concept, as an idea, I think it's a, a, a really uh, liberating one, right? Well, and, and, and with on top of that, it's to going back to the mindset of it, because a lot of people would take 50% failure as... I suck, I'll give up. 
you know whereas if you go into the mindset this is the place i need to go to to actually strive and grow and get to where i want to kind of that higher level self then that place is not a bad experience for you you see the value of it and i think part of it for me i think part of what what in some respects lent itself to me being able to switch to more of a growth set later on is that when I look back and reflect on aspects of my life where I did have skills in areas, like I skateboarded when I was young, for example, and I was quite good, you know, I was sort of good enough. My youngest brother ended up having a professional career for over a decade. Wow. When he X Games, you know, he's very good. But I always remember how much quickly, how I'd get really better a lot, a lot quicker when I was skateboarding with people who were better than me, mm. right? And I, I think the same in terms of a sport like judo. If you think about it, you know, you don't get better from winning all your fights, right? You get better from being at the level of challenge where you get beaten a lot. And I'll tell you what, like, you're down at Christchurch. You've you got some bloody good judo players down there. You've okay. got Graham Spinks, who's a multiple Olympian. You've got Jason Costa as well down there, who's, uh, I think he's a New Zealand coach at the moment and who's a beast, you know. And these are people who you come across them, you know, you, they basically try to hit you with the earth, right? You know? <laughs> And it's a humbling experience, but it's it's a it's a growth experience, mm. right? But you need to be prepared to embrace it. And I think that's that's sort of like the fourth step for me when I think about what it takes for real change of growth is to be able to really recognize that it's not supposed to be easy, mm. that you need to be prepared to deal with the challenge, to deal with the hardship and to fight to get what you want, you know, to really make it happen. And I, I think that is one of the challenges. Like in modern society, we get all these really unhelpful and false messages like, you know, you should always feel happy and in control. You know, what a load of rubbish. Mm. For a start, you know, your brain's not evolved for you to always feel happy. I mean, if you felt happy all the time, you'd have a really annoying neurological disorder, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's just not realistic in terms of the machinery you're using, in terms of, you know, your brain. And there's no way you can always feel in control because the world's out of your control. You know, that's not how things work. So if you have false ideas like this, then what you do is you treat any kind of discomfort, any kind of challenge as a threat to be avoided. Mm. You know, oh, I shouldn't feel any emotional distress. I shouldn't feel any challenge. And so you're constantly retreating to your comfort zone. Whereas actually, if you recognize, you know what, it ain't supposed to be easy. And that's one of the things my wife likes to say to me when I'm, you know, moaning or, you know, upset about, oh, this isn't, oh it's, like, it's not supposed to be easy. Mm. And it's a good reminder because it's through that challenge that you really grow but also that you more effectively deal with the challenges, the failures, and the obstacles that you experience, right? One of the things we know is that uh, people who are unrealistically optimistic are significantly less likely to achieve their goals because the second they had a hurdle, the second they had a challenge, you know, they just quit, give up, blame themselves, that sort of thing. Whereas the people who, you know, have that right perspective where they go, you know what, I, I really want this to happen, I believe it can happen, but I also know that there's going to be lots of challenges along the way. There'll be failures. There'll be times when, you know, I'm not demonstrating the behavior I want to demonstrate, and that's okay. When I'm not performing at the level I want to perform at, and that's okay, because that's going to be some real learning opportunity for me there. Um, But also, as well, one of the key points I talk about in terms of that sort of step is the importance of being able to leverage your support, right? Of being able to make the most of other people around you. I mean, again, let's think of it in terms of that gym analogy. You know, if, if you want to get big at the gym, you need a spotter. You know, you can never perform as well alone as you do with someone else. I, I go to PT sessions, right? I was reluctant to do this for years because I'd trained, you know, by myself for years. And I thought, oh, I know what I'm doing. I don't need mm-hmm. this stuff. But more recently, I've gone along and started catching up with a PT, a guy, Shale, from Les Mills, actually, in, in Wellington. 
And he's so bloody good because he makes me work harder than I would ever do by myself. Yeah. You know, he helps me take it to that next level where I walk out of that session, like I did yesterday, where I walk out feeling physically in shock, right? And I'm going, there's no way I would have thought I could do that or have done that by myself. So there's that crucial component of having other people who can be with you on the journey and who you can lean on for support and encouragement, but also who you know will offer you support when things aren't going well, when things aren't easy. And I think this is one of the big challenges for many men is because we're socialized with this idea that you should be able to stand on your own two feet and not need support from others. It means we're really bad at seeking it when we do actually need it. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons our suicide rates are so bad. As a a Pākehā male in my 40s, right, you know, my biggest risk of death is suicide. Not heart disease, not anything else. Absolutely. That is my biggest risk factor at this point in my life. And the reason for that is that I'm at a point in life where a lot of people start to go, you know, hey, look, well, what is my life about? Am I doing something meaningful? Am I doing something worthy? Um, Am I a worthy person? And then because we have such limited capacity to really reach out for other people because of those self-constrained beliefs and thoughts that, oh, that's not manly, that's not what you do as a man, and so we're not practicing it, that we don't do so. I mean, it's one of the reasons women are way more effective in terms of you know, managing their challenging emotional experiences because they're very good at leaning on support networks yeah. where men aren't. Yeah. And I would say that you know, I grew up thinking that that was the manly thing is to not need support, was what I actually recognize now is what it really means to have courage is to be able to lean into your vulnerability, to be able to embrace that discomfort, and to be able to ask for help when you need it, and also to be able to risk rejection. What kind of people should you be looking for in your life? Because, you know, like, a lot of people are surrounded, and it's always really hard when it's your family, but there's a lot of people who are surrounded in an environment, in in a world of people who... Like, interesting experience. I remember I, I, I went overseas. This is about tw- like I know, I, I'm always been very conscious of choosing my influences. You know, choosing my world. You know, like and, and making sure it's people who are great and challenge me and support me and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I once did a trip for Les Mills, and this is like 2004, and I was around a really horrible group of people, um, and it really affected me. Like I came back quite insecure. I started a bit of stuttering. I started, you know, it was, I, I don't know if I got depression, but I was kind of going down that path. Um, and then luckily, luckily for me, I was like, well, once that trip was done, I was never seeing those people again. But um, what should we be looking for in our people? Well, first of all, hey, I, I just want to validate your experience there. You know, our brains have evolved in a way which is really geared towards us being a social species. Mm. And our social interactions are incredibly important to us. You know, our desire to belong, to be seen and valued by others. But also what it means is that we've developed a certain type of neuron, a certain type of brain cell called mirror neurons, which make other people's emotions really contagious for us. So if you're around other people who are in really challenging emotional states or who act in certain ways or have certain perspectives, that stuff's really contagious because you have a certain type of brain cell to make that stuff contagious, which helps us operate as a social species. So it's not like a Uh, potential thing. It's a very real thing in terms of how your brain functions. So you do want to be careful about who you spend your time with. And there's a couple of things to think about there. One is, you know, what does the behavior of the people you spend your time with suggest about your own values? Do people behave in a way which you would consider to be consistent with your values? Um, If not, then that in itself is a a real problem. Because that's about integrity, that's about sense of character, all of that sort of stuff, and that's crucial. 
And often you can really evaluate yourself quite starkly by thinking about the people you spend most of your time associating with and what that says about you in terms of, again, you know, whether they're people who are likely to prompt you to want to be better than yourself or who are going to you know, have a negative influence. Um, so that's one thing. One thing I'd say, though, is that it's not necessarily around, about surrounding yourself with constantly positive people. No. You know, that can be beneficial for some. But what I would say is the crucial thing is you need to be surrounded by people who share at least some similar core sorts of values to yourself, but also where the relationship is reciprocal. That's the most important thing, where you both benefit from the relationship. I mean, that's the key. It's mutually beneficial. Mm. The problem is, is when you end up in relationships which are parasitic, where you're dealing with someone who's sort of like an emotional vampire or a psychic vampire or someone who's benefiting from your engagement but is only taking from you. And in fairness, look, those can be people who have the same disposition as well as the, you know, the more challenging people to be around. So that's the thing. Is this a mutually beneficial relationship where it actually makes me want to grow as a person? But part of that can be because it's a relationship where you have the opportunity to hear views and opinions which are quite different from your own. Because that's one of the things that you need to grow, right? Talking about all this mindset stuff, in order to grow, you need to have what's called colliding perspectives. That's where people introduce you to different ideas that make you think more about your own view of the world and therefore further refine that and better understand what it is you believe, or that prompt you to actually accommodate a different view of the world in order to broaden your insights and you know your capacity to think and deal with complexity. So I would say key thing there is that don't just look to surround yourself with uh, you know other people who have exactly the same views and position as yourself or way or in the world but just make sure that the people you surround yourself with are people who you can have a mutually beneficial engagement with yeah um in your last step you say living free what does it mean mm. what does living free mean it means no one's at the top of their mountain you know when it comes to being the best version of yourself when it comes to really striving towards your potential that is an exercise that doesn't have an end. When it comes to self-mastery, you know, no one is sitting at the top of their mountain as a perfect human being who in all circumstances and all situations performs how they'd like and demonstrates the behavior they'd most like their reputation to reflect. It is a lifelong journey. You know, I had the um, uh, pleasure of interacting with Graham Henry yeah. uh, recently as part of some work I was doing. And he was talking about the All Blacks and their pursuit of excellence. And he said something that really connected with me because, again, as we've been talking about, I'm all about this idea of getting better, mm. you know, not being good, getting better. And he said, well, better never stops. Mm. And that's really what that idea of living free is about. It's about that this requires ongoing effort and maintenance. You know, it's something where consistent effort is required. It's never going to be over. It's never going to be done. I think of it as comparable to character fitness, right? So character, for me, I like to define that as having the – uh, moral fitness to be able to do what's right rather than what's easy and having the emotional fitness to be able to um, remain effective and resilient when you're experiencing challenge. So those two elements for me is what comprise character fitness. Mm -hmm. And like physical fitness, it's not something that you do, you know, you don't get fit and then go, okay, well, I don't need to exercise anymore. That's done. Now I'll move on to something yeah. else. Yeah. Wouldn't it? God, wouldn't that be great if that's how it <laughs> well, right? well, but, but, the, but the answer is no, because then you lose the love of fitness. You lose, well, you know, that's the thing. Is that it seems appealing True. as you say it, you know, but really it's actually no. Fitness adds so much to my life, not just growth. It's, it's friendships. It's being in nature, you know. And then you, you actually lose that, isn't it? That's the irony of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. But so is the life journey, you know. Yeah. It's it's not something where this is one of the things which you can achieve, tick off your list of things to do and then walk away from. And you have to keep it really real about that. I mean, so, for example, you know, like I use this sort of prison uh, metaphor, right? Like, so what's your prison? So my prison was my thoughts and beliefs about the world. And then, you know, these are the steps that you can take to sort of break free of that mental prison to live a better life, right? But the reality of living free that I've certainly found is that your brain can't one you experience this increased, you know, um, liberty as a result and enhanced experience of life. And then you recognize you're within a perimeter fence for another cell block. Yeah. And there were just these other areas that you didn't recognize or, or think about. I mean, like for me, a massive one has been around, you know, what it means to be a father and what it means to be a husband. Because I did all this work in terms of myself, right, and breaking free of the things that were holding me back, my thoughts and beliefs. But then I find myself in this completely different arena where it's about, well, how can I be with someone else? And that is an ongoing journey of trying to get better. The living free step is about, you know, keeping it real in the sense that I regularly fail to be the, the best version of myself, the version I want my reputation to reflect as a husband and as a father. But that's not a judgment against me. That's just an opportunity to learn and grow. And that's going to be a journey that never stops. I'm going to never stop working on being a better husband and a better father. And that's going to be lifelong, you know, and it's one of those things where there'll be, you know, the absolute best victories and emotions that are experienced as a result of it but also you know the most challenging and the most distressing in terms of letting myself and others down but that's what it means to really be involved in life eh? in fact that's one of the things i'd say having experiences of distressful emotions challenging emotions that is an indicator that you're trying to do something meaningful mm-hmm. that you're in the arena you're off the spectator seats you know and that you're really getting amongst in life and trying to do something important it's not something to be avoided. It's an indicator to be paid attention to that you're actually in there and trying it. Can I ask, you know, I always like to ask this question and it's because um, often we are in the world where we support others' growth and, and obviously, you know, mm. you, yourself, you spend a lot of time kind of self-evolving. Where is your biggest struggle? Is it, is it, is it, that, is it oh. the, yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, my biggest struggle. Um, yeah, I, I think for me that is, again, demonstrating the behavior that I want to as a parent and a husband. There's no question that that's my biggest struggle. It's the area that I'm least experienced in. So again, my kids are pretty young. Um, I haven't been married for all that long. You know, I've been with my wife now, been together for, I think it's six years. We've known each other. First year of that was a distance relationship. And then, you know, we dated and then we got married. Um, uh, I think it's coming on three years ago now. Geez, I should be stop saying all this, I think, stuff, right? <laughs> but anyway, I still feel it's an area where I'm continually growing on a daily basis. There's very little that I have dialed. There's very little that I can sort of just um, go on autopilot. I'm still having to pay a lot of attention. And it's tough, particularly because when you throw into uh, the situations we're talking about there, all the pre-fatigue factors like stresses from work, spending a busy day at work, you know, again, if you think of it as like that emotional fitness analogy, I go to work, I often give the best of myself to people who are nowhere near as important to me as my family yeah. are. By the time I get home, I'm pre-fatigued. Mm-hmm. So emotionally, the chances of them getting the most patient, you know, assuming the best, least grumpy person is significantly reduced. So for me, my biggest struggle and area for growth that I'm focused on at the moment is how can I make sure that I can still deliver to the level that I want in my work life, which is absolutely, you know, at the highest level, but then also make sure that I've got fuel in the tank to be the person I want to be at home. Mm. 
Mm. You know, a colleague of mine, a guy, Digby Scott, talks about work-life balance in a way that really appeals to me. Because often when we think of work-life balance, right, which is a big thing people talk about, we think about attaining some kind of static zen pose where our level of balance will be such that we'll be in the lotus position and the universe will be flowing through us, you know, in this very static way. Whereas actually the, the analogy he uses that I really like and I think is far more realistic is work-life balance is like having a barrel on its side with a plank on top of it and you're standing on top of the plank trying to keep your balance. And it requires constant dynamic recalibration, eh? You know, you're constantly shifting your weight to try and not fall off to keep that balance. It's a dynamic thing. So for me, that's the ongoing struggle is that trying to maintain that right balance. But also as well, that's a struggle I embrace because it shows me I'm trying in all the areas of my life that are important. Mm. If it was easy, then I wouldn't be in that growth zone, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's that kind of recognizing the efforts, the reason, kind of what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. again. And, you know, like for me, I look at it and I look at my workload. And I'm someone who has difficulty saying no to things. I hate feeling like I'm missing opportunities, right, to do stuff I love. Well, it's, look, put it this way. In, in psychology, the, the biggest driver for people is the fear of loss, okay? That is the, yep. the biggest single yep. driver. Yeah, we, we, investing, investing, you see that a lot. People make poor investments because they're so fearful of losing right. money. Yeah. Right. So this is the thing. There are two different lenses, though, on that fear of loss. Some people are oriented towards fear of losing what they already have. And that prompts a more conservative approach. You know, it's more about protecting stuff. But you have other people who are oriented towards a fear of losing what they could have so and could gain. Yeah. yeah, and I'm in that camp. You know, I mean, I'm fortunate that I have a wife who's, you know, uh, more reasoned in terms of being a bit more conservative around decisions. So yeah. reins me in, you know, it's a, it's a really good foil for my, um, comfort with risk taking, yeah. but I'm driven by that. You know, what else could I be doing? What's the additional impact I could have? What could I be doing here? So I need to be really conscious and deliberate about managing that. But part of it as well is previously I sort of looked and gone, well, I just need to reduce my workload. I just need to reduce my workload. But the reality is, is that's part of it. But the other part of it is I need to be consciously and really deliberately continuing to work on my emotional fitness so that I can proactively increase my capacity to cope with stress and pressure before I get fatigued and then ability to recover afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that balance of those two things, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, big time. Um, I could talk to you for many days, mate. You're a really legend. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Just just any kind of last things you'd want to kind of kind of share with anyone who's listening to this? Any kind of things that you haven't touched on that maybe you just want to quickly kind of oh. share? I, I suppose um big thing for me is that you know, you, your brain's wired for you to have lots of distressing emotions. Your brain's wired for you to have lots of unpleasant emotions. You know, those aren't bad emotions to be avoided. You know, emotions aren't good or bad. Emotions are either helpful or unhelpful. Yeah. And that's a more useful way to think about them. And a better way to deal effectively with your emotions is just to accept that you're going to have them. You know, is not to try and say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this, but rather just to be able to create a bit of space for it. For example, you know, in terms of, uh, the conversation before, I'm already feeling a little bit anxious about how I spoke about my offense and all of that sort of stuff earlier on. But instead of going to myself, oh, well, you know, that's a terrible thing, I'm just going, okay, well, I'm just going to make a bit of space for that because it's an uncomfortable area to discuss. So that's absolutely fine. That's an appropriate emotional reaction for me to have mm. in a sensitive area as opposed to going, oh, I shouldn't be feeling anxious or oh, that definitely means I've done something wrong. 
So that's one of the things I'd say is stop thinking of your emotions as good or bad based on whether they're pleasant or unpleasant to feel and start thinking of them as helpful or unhelpful. Another example there, you know, we often think that fear is a bad thing. I feel fear every time my toddler walks into the kitchen and I'm a cooking. It's a really helpful emotion to have. Mm. But equally, if you think about some of the things that are pleasant to experience, those can be problematic too, depending on your situation and the outcome. I mean, I know you've got a global audience who may not be familiar with the scenario, but think of our, you know, our ex-Prime Minister, John Key, sitting in a restaurant and getting a bit excited when he saw a waitress walk past with a ponytail. Yeah. You know, I would say that that was a very unhelpful emotion based on the outcome. <laughs> associated with that but i'm sure it was pleasant for him at the time mm. so that's one of my key messages there is stop thinking about your emotions as good or bad start thinking of them as helpful or unhelpful very specifically based on the situation you're in when you feel them what you do with them what you get from them stop trying to fight them start making space for them noticing them but not letting them stop you from doing what you need to do um but if people want to follow you oh uh dr paul wood uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, that's about as sophisticated as I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, link that. Okay. and your website is what my, What's My Prison. I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. Thanks for your time, mate. You, yeah. you, you're, I love your passion. I love your insight. Um, you're obviously doing really important work out there and uh, just keep doing what you're doing, mate. You're a bloody rock star. Brilliant. My pleasure. So there you go, there's the interview with Dr. Paul Wood. Hopefully you gained a lot from it. As you can see, he's a very passionate man who has a really interesting life story, obviously very challenging in the first period of life for for many reasons, really. And, uh, you know, to, to come from that to being a person who's really trying to make positive influence on the world in, in some quite powerful ways is pretty great stuff. So if you want to check out Paul's work, you can go to whatsmyyourprison.com. That's what your, what's, sorry, whatsyourprison.com. Or you can just go to bevanjamesisles.com and I'll put a link to it on the website. That's pretty much today's show done and dusted. If you want to become a patron of the Bevan James Isles show, just go to bevanjamesisles.com. If you want to send the show out to anyone, feel free about that. If you want to email me, it's bevanjames at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, keep doing what you're doing well. Maybe that should be the end of my show. I've never had a, an outro to this show. Um, and maybe I'm going to, have to call it, keep doing what you're doing well. Is that a good one? What do you think? Let me know. Anyway, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks' time.